Well, let's do that. Uh, you can turn to the book of James if you haven't already done so. We're uh, in sort of the latter half of James chapter 1 today, and Lord willing, we'll get into chapter 2. And uh, while you're turning there, let me start the PowerPoint for you. Okay, so uh, let's turn to James, and Alan will get us going on the screen there. Uh, so where have we been? Where have we been? The, the, kind of the first section of James that we've looked at is... Um, I mean, the, the title of our study is Real Faith in Difficult Times. And the idea is James is trying to bring together two. Well, he's, he's trying to he really has one message, but it, the context that which he brings that message is instructive uh, itself. We know that James is writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, meaning Jewish Christians, that very first generation of uh, Jewish believers that are undergoing persecution. They've had to leave their hometown of Jerusalem and they have largely moved north and west in that part of the world, and now they are scattered, and James is writing to encourage them and to help them and uh, in their life. So, so we're thinking about what does it mean to live out faith, but in times that are difficult and times that are troubling. That's the zip code, 76049. Thank you. All right. Thanks, John. Okay, so real faith, living out in difficult times, what we're trying to do. And uh, the very the very first question we looked at in the first section of James is how does how do we respond to the challenges of life? That that we demonstrate real faith by how we respond to challenges. So we've talked in the last several weeks about trials and lacking wisdom and being humbled and temptation and even the blessing of good things and how that can be a challenge. If, if we're not acknowledging those good things as coming from God's hand and making them occasions of worship rather than just occasions of godless enjoyment. And we're going to turn the corner today and talk really about uh, and relationships. That's the last part we talked about. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is a second main idea in James. What does real faith look like? And, and how do we practice real faith when times are difficult? So, so here's, here's the next big question James is going to throw down for us, okay? Does your faith lead to godly action? Does your faith lead to godly action? And we're going to look at that in several realms in the next uh, couple of verses. Being a doer of the word, pursuing love of neighbor and personal purity, and not showing partiality. Okay, those, that's kind of where we're going. But here's the question. Real faith is a living faith. Real faith is faith in action. And so one of the things we have to do in trying to evaluate the legitimacy of faith is to say, well, how am I living? Right. Well, what is what does my life look like? <clears throat> so you see there you thought that was a Nike commercial, but it's not. It's it's the reminder to just live it. Right. Just live it. Live your faith, proving that you can pretty much find anything you want on Google. So uh, so let's let's do that in James chapter one. And we're going to pick it up from last time in chapter one, verse 22. Actually, let, let, that, really should, that, that really should be verse 21. Um, so let's let's look at this together. <clears throat> Therefore, putting aside all... Aside all oh, oh. Let's try that. Okay, there we are. Uh, therefore, where was I? I was at therefore. Uh, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility... Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourself to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Uh, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Now, I put a couple of pictures up there, and I was talking to uh, Carl after the, uh, was that a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the significance of uh, storms and waves and and, uh, and how thematically, if you study that in the Bible, it usually has a, a negative connotation, right, in terms of the, the, the challenges of life and whatnot. Um, look at these two uh, 
these two pictures here. What does it make you think of? Building on the rock and building on the sand. Do you hear in what James is saying about receiving the word implanted and then being a doer of the word, do you hear Jesus' parable, or his, I guess this is a parable, back in Matthew chapter 7, about the wise man and the foolish man who, who both built houses? Do you hear that? Remember, as you're reading James, one of the things you're supposed to see is um, th- this is a book that is influenced incredibly by the life and ministry of Jesus, which would make sense because James was, in fact, his brother, right? So uh, even though James was not a disciple for a lot of his life, at some point uh, he became a disciple and um, and benefited from all this all this teaching. Growing up with Jesus as your brother, that, that'd be kind of rough, right? It's, you know, you can never live up to your your brother's standard. Oh, anyway, that, that's for another day. Um, yeah, so so you have this building on a rock, building on the sand, and uh, some of you have seen the Gulf Coast when hurricanes have come through over the last years, where you see houses that are actually end up looking like that or, or even worse. And uh, so James is, is going to call us here to think back to that parable. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he'd been preaching, right? Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount in, in the New Testament. He's preaching. He gets to the end of his sermon, then Jesus says this. Uh, the one who hears these words of mine and acts on them, meaning he's a doer of the word, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And uh, he talks about how the winds come and the storms come and they slam against the house. And what happens? What happens to the house that's built on the rock? It stands because it has a good foundation, right? And then Jesus says this, he who hears these words of mine and does not act on them may be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the same circumstances of life, right? The wind blow, the rain comes, it slams against its house, and what happens? It falls. And Jesus adds, as he comes to the crescendo of his sermon, and great was its fall. How tragic it would be to hear the words of Jesus Words of life, words of forgiveness, words of wisdom, words that direct your life in ways that honor God. And what a tragedy it would be to hear those words and not act on them. Knowing that, symbolically speaking, your life, like that house, would result in a great and dramatic tear down and and fall. That's the point of what he's trying to say. And this course looks backward a little bit to what James talked about last time, a a double-minded man who's unstable in all his ways. You know this, right? Is your Christian experience one of being a doer of the word or a hearer only? And we all know what it's like when we're not being doers of the word, right? We know something of that spiritual instability. So, so that's what James is addressing here. So just an interpretive issue we have to answer. And maybe as you were reading through this, you had the, the same question that I did. And that is, is James talking about uh, an unbeliever who needs to become a Christian? Or is he talking about a Christian that needs to live in light of what he knows? Do you see the difference? When he says there in verse 21, um, put aside all filthiness, all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And, and probably at first glance, that sounds more like he's talking to unbelievers who need Christ. And, and, and that, that's, I guess, a legitimate way to take it. But, but the emphasis in the context so far, and I think it's really where he goes, is he's, he's not saying so much, hey, if you're not a Christian, you need to you know, take Jesus seriously and act in faith, although that, that's certainly true, absolutely true. Here's his point. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Christian, you need to start acting on what you know. You need to start living more in light 
of the knowledge of the word that you have. And you say, where do you get that, Pastor Keith? Look back at the text. Where is the word? Look at verse 21. Where does the word reside in verse 21? Where is it? It's implanted. The word is there. It's already in your heart. And, and, and probably what James is getting at there is what we think of as regeneration or conversion, meaning the word has already come in. It, it's already done work in the heart. It's there. What we need to do now is live in light of it. I mean, how many of you, how many would raise your hand and say, I am living to the best of my ability. Everything I know, the Bible tells me. Yeah, me too. And this is the call. In fact, it's interesting. Look what he says. He says, put aside all filthiness. Let's go ahead and get into this here. So put off wickedness and all that remains there, right? And and notice this. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And again, we we could take that as a, hey, you're not not a Christian. You need to repent and trust Christ. But that's that's not really the language here. Receive the word implanted. That word receive means to welcome it. Accept it. He's not saying you've never heard this before. You need to repent and trust Jesus for the first time. He's saying you do know this. You do know the word. It's in your heart. It's it's inside you. Now welcome it as a guide for your life. And do what you know. Okay. Theological question. In the parable that I quoted in Matthew 7, the wise man who builds his house on the rock, what is the rock? What does the rock represent? I'm hearing the word. I'm hearing Christ. I'm hearing... Jude, what do you think, man? Jesus. Jesus? Okay, that's a good guess. Uh huh. I think because other places in Scripture, Jesus is called the rock. We have like this subconscious, like Jesus detector in our brain, and we hear rock, and we go, oh, that's Jesus, right? And, and, you know, you're right. Those of you that said Jesus or Christ, Jesus is called the rock in, in uh, Peter's letter, for example. It's the confession of faith. We think of Matthew 16. Okay. Um, we, but see, we don't have to guess. And, and I want to I punctuate this as just a Bible interpretation help for you. Okay. Often, we don't have to guess what the symbols of the Bible represent if we just read the text carefully. So I'm going to quote the verse to you. You listen carefully and you tell me what the rock is, okay? Jesus speaking. He who hears these words of mine and acts on them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. So what is it? It's a doer of the word. The rock is not Jesus, right? Although it's related, you have to hear the words of Jesus and act on them. So Jesus is involved. The rock represents the man who hears these words of Jesus and does them, right? He's a doer of the word. That's what James is saying here. So welcome the word, right? Accept the word in acting on it. And and those of you uh, probably notice this. It sounds like he's saying put off and put on, right? He's saying put off wickedness, put off uh, all that remains of filthiness, right? And then welcome the word that is able to save your souls. And, and don't let that save your souls language throw you off. He's not talking about save you like initially in conversion. He's saying as we demonstrate a pattern of trusting and obeying, trusting and obeying, trusting and obeying, that leads to heaven, doesn't it? Not that we're earning it. It shows us that we're really saved is what James is getting at. And, and of course, James has on his mind here trying to help us to understand what does a real Christian look like. So if we can sum it up like this, here's James' point. A real Christian is a doer of the word and not just a hearer. Can, can you think of a more important message to bring to the Bible Belt? People that largely grew up in church, people that are largely somewhat kind of maybe familiar with the stories in the Bible. 
Although that's end. Have you noticed that? You talk to people about the Bible and they're like, they have no clue what you're talking about. They don't know Noah from Moses, from Abraham. But what is what is the plight of the Christian South, whatever remains of it? What's the problem with, with cultural Christianity? You can talk. It's okay. You guys are really quiet today. But remember, this is interactive, so don't let me dominate the conversation. Gary, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. 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 It's head knowledge. It's, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? You know, we're all fans of Jesus. But when you start looking at what is what is the purpose behind that person's life? What's really guiding and directing them? Who do they really listen to? What do they really love? What what sort of compass is is directing their life? And what James is saying is, well, if they're a real Christian, it's the word. It's their faith, right? Their, their faith is what informs how they vote, how they talk, how they interact with their family, what they entertain themselves with, right? That, that, that's it. And so what a, what a message that, that God would, would instruct us in, in James, to say, you know what? Grace Bible Church, Granbury, Texas, Hood County, 2021. How many people around us need to hear this? That a real Christian is a doer of the word, not just a hearer. And that real faith, you wonder why so many people, they look at their lives and it's like, it looks like they've built on sand when the storms of life come and it obliterates their stability. Well, maybe it's because they're built, they've built on the wrong foundation. So we want to be a doer of the word, he says. Now notice, people that are hearers only and not doers, James says here, they're really deluding themselves. And I think this is the challenge of evangelizing the Bible Belt. The challenge of evangelizing cultural Christians, people that would think that they're Christians because they know some Christian things or maybe they made a profession of faith. Here's the challenge. They don't think they need a savior. They think they're okay. And that's what James is saying is that when when you grow comfortable just being a hearer of the word, what does it do? It deceives you. It deceives you into what? Things are okay. That's right. And that's the culture we live in, guys. And again, yes, it's changing. Hood County is more non-Christian today than it's ever been. Bible ignorant today than it's ever been. But but the, the, the cultural air that we breathe here is still cultural Christianity. It's Bible Belt Christianity. And the hardest part of reaching a culture like our county is that people are deceived into thinking they're Christians when they're not. And what are you going to do? You go up to them and say, well, I, I hear you profess in faith, but you're a liar. So let me help you with that. Well, how's that going to go? Right? That's not the approach we want to take, is it? So what James is helping us to see is how do you help somebody to see that a faith that is merely professed but not lived out in being a doer of the word, that that faith is delusion. It's not real faith. How do you do that? Well, Jesus helps us. And I think James helped. What were you? I saw that hand. What were you going to say? Find a need and fill it. Sure. Yeah. That's one way just to you know, love our neighbor and whatnot. But I think Jesus and James give us a real practical way of doing that. What does your faith look like when the storms of life come? You know, one of the one of the things the Bible says over and over again, and, and this is a question every Christian asks. So why does God allow trials in my life? Why, why, why would God let me go through this? And one of the universal answers of the Bible is because trials prove the reality of your faith. That's what Peter's going to say in 1 Peter. The testing of your faith, right? Uh, refines it so that you see that it's real. And 
when we interact with our friends and we see their lives falling apart because their faith is nothing but sand, that's an occasion to introduce them to faith that brings stability and brings longevity. So I think when we see our friends in trial, that's that's an occasion to try to help them uh, to see what real faith looks like. Now, now notice this. Look, look back at the text. We've got to keep moving here. If anyone is a, a, a hearer only and not a doer of the word, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And uh, for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. You, you understand the picture? Um, you know, you go, and, and maybe you're getting ready in the morning, and you look in the mirror, and you go, I really need to fix that before I go out today. And then you get busy. When your kids comes up and you forget what you saw in the mirror that needed attention, and before you know it, you're on your way, having not uh, addressed whatever the facial malady was that you needed to fix that morning, right? And um, and that's what James is saying. When, when, we, when we look in the law, we see what God says, and we immediately forget it. It doesn't affect, right? It, it doesn't. It doesn't have any uh, effect on our life. It doesn't result in any doing of the word. And as he says there, he's forgotten what kind of person he was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and I think carrying the idea of seeing who we really are um, into life is one of the ways we remedy it. Right. We, we have to remember that we have to act on that rather than being, a, as he's going to say here, a forgetful hearer instead of an effectual doer. So, no, that's good. That's a good insight. Okay. So coming back to 25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. And that's just a parallel to what he said with the word. When you hear law, don't, don't think, you know, Mosaic law and, or Old Testament. I mean, that, that's not really what James has in mind in the context. He's, he's going back to the implanted word. He's saying you've been exposed to the word of God. You, you've heard the teachings of Christ. And, um, and that's what we need to look intently at, the perfect law, the law of liberty and then do what? Not be a forgetful here, not forget what you see, but then what? Live it out, right? Yeah, not, not a forgetful here, but an effectual doer to abide by it, right? And that, that, uh, that abiding language reminds us of what passage in the Gospels? You remember? John 15, right? Where Jesus says, abide in me, remain in me. So again, you see the parallels between what James is saying and what Jesus is saying. That that's the point. You you continue to live trusting Christ and remembering what his word says, living it out in life. And and what's the result? The result of that is this man will be blessed in what he does. And even that sounds like the Gospels because we have that whole section in Matthew chapter 5 that we call the Beatitudes. Todd's mouthing it there, right? And, and blessed, remember, blessed sounds way too religious, way too religious. It means happy. When, when you see the word of God bringing stability in your life, when you see a life that is transformed by the word, when you look back and say, I am not the same person that God is working in my life and I'm changing, that's a happy time, isn't it? So not having become a forgetful here, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Okay, so so the challenge of of this part of what he's getting at is to be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer. How many of you you grew up in a a Bible teaching church of some sort? Okay. And, and you know, I I did also. I, I had the blessing of that. And I think that's a stewardship because we know a lot of stuff. 
And it may be that we're maybe a little more prone to not be as faithful to live in light of what we know as those that maybe heard it later in life. I, maybe that, that's a generality for sure, but there's a stewardship there to be doers of the word. What a, what a challenge, right? To, to be, to be a church that's known not just for doctrinal purity, although we stand on that, but on doctrinal application in every area of life. And that's what Jesus says back in Matthew chapter 5. We will be salt and light to this world when we were not just proclaiming his message, but living it out. Um, When we are transformed by the word we preach, when we live differently in light of the message we bring, you know what that does? It authenticates the message. It demonstrates that the faith that we're teaching is real, right? Because it does amazing things. No one's going to take us seriously if we're not practicing what we preach. Okay, not, not perfectly. We understand we're in process. Not perfectly, but just, but truly, really, like, like my life is actually being driven by my faith, and people can see that, and that's that's really what he's getting at. Okay, number two, he's going to talk as we think about just this this grander theme of faith and action. He's going to talk now about three areas. Of true religion. If I, I mean, I know you know James, I know you're reading James and, and you know the line, but just, if you were to go man on the street, go down to Hood County, go down to the courthouse, and, and we do a, we do a Ray Comfort, right? We put a camera and a mic in somebody's face, and we say, what do you think is true religion? What will we hear? And James here is going to define for us what true religion is really about. And so as you think, what is my faith really about? I want you to try to bring what you think your faith is about in line with what James is going to say real religion is. Because I think I think we all could use some adjustments here. Look at this, verse 26. If anyone thinks that he's religious and he doesn't bridle his tongue, but what's the next word? Deceive. How many times has he used that word deceive? Or delude. I think that's the third time. We're deceived by our own lusts. We're deceived by a profession of faith only, not being a doer of the word. We're deceived when we think, oh, I'm religious, but there's no Christ-enabled, Bible-directed self-control over my mouth. He deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. So area number one is control your words. Um, James is going to talk about this more in chapter three, so we're just going to wave our hands at it right now, okay? But he's building up to chapter three. He already told us to be quick to listen and slow to speak, right? We saw that last time. Here he's saying, your religion is worthless if you don't have control over your words. And then in chapter three, that's the crescendo where he just hits it out of the park in terms of how important it is that we bridle our words. But but just think about that. Um, we, we express what we believe about God and about life most simply in how we talk. And I think looking backward on 2020 and particularly in the political realm that Christians are involved in in all different ways, What a difference we might make in the cultural political arena if Christ followers stood out and were characterized and, and, and very clearly seen by the fact that they talked radically different than everybody else in those exchanges of ideas, in those discussions about political candidates and their their beliefs and their uh, laws and their legislation. And that's what he's saying. He's saying if our words 
don't honor Christ, especially in realms that are highly public like that, we're just like everybody else. Our faith, our religion is useless. That's a challenge, isn't it? Because like you, I get caught up in that too. I get upset too. I get sinfully angry too. And and uh, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago in my sermon. I think Christians now are more tempted than ever to return evil for evil, especially in the political cultural realm. Because we see it out there. We see that it works, right? It works. So maybe that's what we need to do also to, to get our agenda. And James is saying... That's a useless religion if we engage in the same speech as people that don't love Christ. So we need to control our words. That's point one. What's the third? Well, the second area of godly action. You, you know this one. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. So number two is help the helpless. Um, can we just um, huddle up here for a minute? How are we doing in terms of helping the helpless? Uh, some of you remember the name Ray Hansen. How many know Ray, Ray Hansen? Yeah, that's sad. Just three of you. Um, it, it's not because the rest of you are bad. It's because you haven't had occasion to meet Ray. Uh, we have we had a relationship with Ray for many many years. He runs a orphanage in Reynosa, Mexico, just over the border from McAllen, Texas. And uh, did you, you ever go down there, Rusty? Or, I know your kids did. Yeah. Um, and Ray Jean, you, you went down there, right? You've been down there before. Kids. Okay. Yeah. So um, when I in this is crazy. 20 years ago this summer, I interned in Grace Bible Church. Where did the time go? That's what you say when you're old, right? Where did the time go? Um, and the very, one of the very first things I did as an intern is I co-led a mission trip to Reynosa, Mexico with a bunch of teenagers. And um, we would go down there and we would work in the orphanage. And, and Ray would also, every, every time a new mission team would show up, he'd sit us down at chapel and he would get up. And he would repeat, he would chant this verse, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our father is this, right? To visit orphans and widows in their distress. And that was, that was the whole premise of his ministry. And you know what? He's right. That helping the least of these, helping the afflicted, helping the helpless is a mark of true Christianity. And I don't know about you, I feel like I'm failing in that department. And I need I need to improve in that department. Uh, we have a, a, a ministry to widows in our church. And we praise the Lord for that. Um, but there's so much more in our community we can be doing. And so I, I would hold this up, speaking mostly to myself, but as well to our church, that this is an area where we can grow in. Because true, well... True and undefi- pure and unfouled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And, to, and uh, notice the third area of godly action here, and that is to keep oneself unstained by the world, to avoid worldliness. And again, what, that reminds us of something Jesus said, right? In John 17, he's praying to his father, and he said, he's about to leave, and he says about his disciples, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, so he's saying our God's plan is that we remain in the world. But what was his prayer in John 17? Do you remember? Not that he they would take that the father would take Christians out of the world, but what? They wouldn't be of the world, right? He says, keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the influence of the world. Uh, John's going to say the same thing in his letter. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. When we love the world... As an ultimate love, what does he say? The love of the Father is not in them. That's the same thing James is saying, right? Worldliness 
is a reflection of fake faith. And we have to guard our hearts. I, 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 I don't mean to be just be confessing all my sins to you guys today, but I fight this all the time. All the time. I lose this battle sometimes. Just getting caught up in the world. Things I like, cool things, hobbies, sports, uh, the news, the whatever, right? And, and the world is full of really neat things. Nothing wrong with enjoying those to the glory of God insofar as they're wholesome. But how easy it is to be distracted from what really matters. And not just be distracted, to be influenced, where we're taking our cues from a culture rather than taking our cues from the word of God. So that's what we're talking about, right? Control your words, help the helpless, avoid worldliness. Those are marks of true Christianity. And, and, uh, and those help to reset how we think about the nature of our faith. Okay, let's, let's look at one final thing this morning. Uh, and that, this gets us into the chapter two. And uh, this is going to be a great chapter we're going to park in for a little while. But this is the reality of impartiality. Impartiality. Uh, let me let me tell you a story. Um, I uh, I went to seminary in L.A. Many of you know that uh, Los Angeles, L.A. And um, I was involved my first semester, my freshman year, in a little tiny church in Santa Monica. And uh, how many know Santa Monica? Okay, all right. So Santa Monica is a beach city due west of downtown L.A. So if you're in L.A. proper, and you jump on the 10, and you you drive west, you're going to hit a beach. You're going to hit the Pacific Ocean, right? And they have this little, like, amusement park thing, and there's piers, and people hang out there and whatnot. It's a really, really neat area. But like so many areas of Southern California, as you're getting to the beach, you're driving through very, very difficult and run-down, and in some cases, poverty-stricken parts of the town. And our, our little church, I, I, I ministered in a church for a year, my first year of seminary, in Santa Monica. And it wasn't over by the beach where things are a little bit nicer. It was more inland, what was kind of slumpy, actually. And uh, I'll never forget um, sitting in church and hearing this squeak, squeak, squeak behind me. And I turn around. And there's a guy pushing a shopping cart right down the center aisle of the church. And he was one of the thousands of homeless persons that live all over the streets of L.A. And he looked like a homeless person, right? His clothes were dirty and, and torn. Uh, he probably hadn't had a shower or a bath or anything in, in weeks or maybe even months. Uh, he had what little belongings uh, in his shopping cart. And he came squeaking his cart down the aisle that day as Pastor Jason was preaching his sermon that morning. And uh, and that was a good season for me in lots of ways. And maybe how many of you have done ministry to homeless or, or you've been in a church environment like that? OK, if, if you've never done that, it. There was something really incredible about it, frankly, even though I didn't go looking for it. Because it immediately challenges you with what James is talking about. And, and chances are you, your church experience may not know anything about what James is going to say here. OK, so let's read it and then I'll tell you a little more of my story. OK, James, chapter two, verse one. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Okay, so favoritism. And, and if I said, should we treat people equally or should we show discrimination? You would all say we should treat people equally. I know that. But here's the challenge. When somebody comes into our congregation and they don't look like we do, they don't talk like we do, they don't dress like we do, maybe it's not our congregation. Maybe you're sitting at the park with your grandkids. Maybe you're at a soccer game in town. Maybe you're at line, you're in line in HEB and someone comes in behind you and they're different. 
What arises up in our hearts when that happens? And that's what James wants to talk about here. He says, he gives an example. If someone comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So notice the language that he uses here. I'll just throw up a few terms here so you get the idea. This is the point of the section. Favoritism, special attention, distinctions, judge, honor, partiality. And and you say, what is that describing? Well, he he tells us why that's a problem. Look at this, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you to court? And, and what he's saying there is that we, we often idealize what it would be like to be rich. We might admire people that are rich. We might want to be tempted to, to treat them specially because they dress nice and we know that they're a person of means. And James is just saying, wait a minute, time out. Let's, let's remember a little bit that, that People that are, he's, he's not condemning people that are rich. He's not saying it's sinful to be rich. What he's saying is, let's not idealize them in a way that is ungodly. And he gives some examples. You know, usually it's the rich that are suing each other and, you know, things like that. So we need to recognize that there's some weaknesses there. Uh, look at verse 8. Here's the point, right? Why is partiality wrong and sinful? Verse 8, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture. Now, here's the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Okay, so so talk to me here. Why is showing special treatment to people based on externals especially? Why is that so bad? It shows where your focus is. Not in the right place. You're classifying and judging image bearers of God. And on external things, of all things, we don't know if that rich person loves Jesus or not. We don't know if that poor person loves Jesus or not, right? And that's. We do not know their heart. We do not know their heart. That's right. Thanks, Diana. That's, that's absolutely it. We don't want to judge based on externals. Okay. Yeah. Ron? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, uh, you're telling them that they're, they're worthless or at least not worth as much as the rich guy that's getting all the, the fair treatment. But, but what, where, where does James go? He says partiality is wrong because it's a violation of what? The law that says love your neighbor. So, so here's the point. Uh, we know true Christianity when we see people living out love of neighbor. And James, James is strategic, can we say that? Because if we said, how are you doing loving your neighbor? Well, I think I'm doing okay. I probably room some improvement. But So, so he, he goes in the back door and he says, let's say a rich guy comes in your church. He's got nice clothes on, and 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 uh, you know he's he's from a, a prominent family, and and you're stumbling over you, you know you sit in the front row here, you know Pastor Terry's you know favorite preaching chairs, right, and 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 you right, and you're giving him the special treatment, and then a poor man comes in, and you kind of well let's kind of move him in the back and keep keep him out of the way. We don't want people to feel uncomfortable, you know, from the appearance or maybe the stench or maybe. So James picks an example that probably many of us would struggle with and says, how are you doing loving your neighbor? Because it's not the areas that we're comfortable in that are good ways to see how we're doing 
it's those areas that make us uncomfortable that are the best places to evaluate how are we doing loving neighbor in those situations. And again, you can see why repentance is is probably something we need to be thinking about because uh, we do this, don't we? We make distinctions based on externals. And, 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 and James isn't saying we shouldn't make any distinction about anything. I mean, there, there are godly judgments. But when we treat people in a way that is unloving because of those externals, we're violating that law. So, Nick? You know, that's that, you know, you, you can fall off the saddle on either side of the horse, can't you? I mean, you know, you can you can idolize the rich man and ignore the poor. You can elevate another group to the detriment of others and, and, and pay special attention to them. So, yeah, it's it, there are innumerable ways we cannot love neighbor. And, and so that, that's a good point, Nick, just to say that loving neighbor means we're treating everybody. I like what Carl said as image bearers. We're treating everybody as an image bearer made in the image and likeness of God and somebody that we should respect and honor as a creation of God. And um, again, how, how would, in a culture, Nick, where no matter who's up and who's down, there's always somebody that's being elevated and someone who's being repressed. There's always that sort of thing going on. Christians make a difference when we say, I don't care what you look like. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care what your ethnicity is. I'm going to love you and treat you as my neighbor. That's how we make a difference for Christ in this world. In that, in that consistency and loving neighbor. So uh, that, that's, a, that's a great opportunity. Now, now watch where he goes with this. <laughs> this is that verse that we, uh, we know really well here. But um, he says in verse 10, if you show part or nine, if you show partiality, you're committing by the law as transgressors. Whoever, whoever keeps whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And he gives some examples, right? You say not commit murder, do not or not commit adultery, and do not commit murder. But if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, then you become a transgressor of the law. So, so what he's saying is. As we're thinking about partiality in particular, to recognize that it's it's not it's not good Christian logic to say, but I'm doing so well in these other areas of my life, I don't need to worry so much about this one area that maybe I need to grow in. Because the idea here is that uh, we we can we can keep the whole law and stumble in one part and become guilty of the whole thing. And then he comes to this conclusion, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, remember, he's used that little phrase, law of liberty, a couple of times now. That goes back to the implanted word. It goes back to um, responding to the word implanted, right? He says, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. So so we say, what, what do we say here? He's reminding us that Christians, Christians now, will undergo a judgment in terms of how they have lived out by God's grace the word that's been implanted, the word of God itself. That God will hold us accountable one day for how we loved our neighbor. He will hold us accountable one day for how we bridled our tongue, how we visited the helpless and helped them in their distress, how we how we kept ourselves unstained by the world. He will hold us accountable one day for whether or not we were doers of the word or mostly hearers of the word. And, and we understand, and I need to say this very clearly, that the judgment of Christians one day is not a judgment that determines heaven or hell. It's a judgment that that determines 
a, a reward of blessing before God as we enter heaven. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians when he talks about, um, we sometimes call it the, the, the Bema seat or the Bema seat judgment uh, because it's uh, the, the word in Greek behind the, the judgment that Jesus, uh, or excuse me, that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians is described with that language. But So this is not a judgment unto heaven or hell. This is a judgment of faithfulness and reward and blessing for Christians in terms of how they live that out. And notice, this goes back to something Jesus said in Matthew 7 also. Judgment will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. What does that mean? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, to some degree, a Christian's judgment of how well they lived out the will of God in their life is determined by the level of mercy that they showed other people. Now let that sink in for a minute. There is a scale of judgment that depends in part on the level of mercy that we show other people. And that's that's eye-opening, but that's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 7, right? You know, the manner that you judge, it will be judged of you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not notice the log in your own eye? That's just, It's the same principle, so it shouldn't be something new. So, so what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that a Christian ought to be characterized not just by faithfulness to the word, being a doer of the word, we've seen that, but that what should characterize our lives is a love of showing mercy to other people. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. The gospel is a gospel of mercy and grace. And God would want us to demonstrate the same mercy to others that he has shown to us. And in some way, in some way, that plays into how God will judge us one day. Okay, I know there's some question marks, and, and James doesn't expand on that, so we kind of have to just let it sit there. But we certainly remember that mercy is what God is looking for in us toward other people. Okay? Whew! That's hard-hitting stuff, isn't it? But, but why is God telling us this? He's telling us this because he loves us, and he wants us to be more conformed to the image of his Son. And so these reminders are good occasions for repentance and growth as we would seek to live out our faith, real faith, uh, in the days that we occupy now. So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for um, this book, even though it is, it stings a bit as James reminds us of um, ways that we need to grow. Lord, I pray that we would be doers of the word. We would hunger and thirst for righteousness and living that out, that we would think about what you define true religion to be, and we would be working on those areas of life. Lord, help us to love our neighbor and show mercy on our neighbor and not demonstrate um, a partiality that is unbecoming of how a Christian ought to live and, and, and certainly not becoming of the Lord Jesus, who was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Lord, we long to be like our Savior. Will you help us? to grow and make us effective as a church, as we would heed the admonitions that we've heard today. In Jesus' name, amen.